0: Hello listeners, I'm Logan McLean, and this is OJT, On The Job Training. It's a podcast where I, a rookie journalist, practice my craft by interviewing passionate people about their projects. Julie Pellissier-Lush was here last month, but we barely scratched the surface of her many talents. Today, we get into life as PEI's Poet Laureate. We talk about what storytelling means to her, her involvement with various Mi'kmaq theatre companies, and the doors that continue to open in her new role. And stick around after the interview for the progress report about my inspiring experience of learning and writing about world religions. So I got a couple of things out of that backstory. Definite long time seems like interest in education and things related to performance. And that's a lot of the stuff that you're involved with now. I guess we can move in that direction a little bit. Definitely. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of what storytelling means to you personally.
1: Storytelling for me has always been a way to celebrate who we are, to share our past in a way that isn't um, a nodding head. It isn't a textbook read. It is something that's real and concrete and done in the right way can be absolutely beautiful so that the listener can take what they want from the story. They don't have to take any of it at all because it's a story, or they can absorb it and and make it their own story. That's how I have sort of worked doing what I do, learning from my father, learning from my grandfather, learning from the elders here in PEI, learning from the aunties and uncles and hearing their stories. And sometimes they're sad stories of struggle and pain. And sometimes there are stories of celebration and joy. And then there's also the stories of the past, which is how we transferred our knowledge of how we were, where we came from, what we've overcome. And all of those things, because there wasn't a whole lot of written words for how we lived our lives. We always did it by storytelling, because storytelling was a way to share our past in a way that our grandchildren would hear it over and over, and they'd be able to grow up and share it with their grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And that's just how we shared our knowledge, our traditions, our customs, and a lot of our times, even our language.
0: It's interesting. This is only tangentially related, but I just finished a story today for Passover, for the world religion stories that I'm doing. And one of the key parts of the Seder dinner is the telling of the story of Exodus. And while it is written in the Bible, it's also something that's been passed down orally from family to family, from the oldest to youngest generation every year at Passover, because a lot of folks don't read it straight out of the Bible. It's how their family told it to them and on and on. It's such an interesting way for history to work because it's, you know, there's Particular details that are essential, but in the telling of it, it's a little bit different to every person because it means something different to every person.
1: That's very true.
0: Do do you do that? <clears throat> do you find that you do that with your storytelling because of the way that your father kind of did things a little bit differently every time?
1: I think so, but I really do try to keep the core of the stories alive. I might add a little tiny bit of humor in different places, but. I really do try to keep the core of the stories the same. And when I first started researching our past stories, I went on to a a site and I found the book by Silas Rand and two huge volumes of Mi'kmaq stories that were told by the oldest people in the communities across the Atlantic in about 1870. two is when Silas Ran went around and tried to collect as many stories as he could from the oldest living members of the indigenous community. And he came to PEI, went to New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and he wrote all these down. And some of the elders, I will hear these stories sometimes told in a different way, but they're telling me like the pure story, whereas his was a story that had to be translated in his head from Mi'kmaq to English and then trying to write it down and keep the the elements of the story. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking two different languages, because Mi'kmaq is so different than English in many ways, how it's created, how the words mean, how Mm -hmm. things are put together, and what they mean, it's a very, very concrete language I've been learning over time from my elders. I remember one time, my one of my elders was trying to teach me some Mi'kmaq, and they said, Kamlemon um, is your heart. Kamlemon. And so I learned that really easy. I said, okay, I can remember that. And then maybe about a week later, something broke, and he was like, oh, bus gig. And I was like, what's that mean? He goes, broken. So about a week later, I was like, okay, you know, I have to travel to Lennox. I said, do you want to come up and keep me company and we can, you know, chit chat the whole way? And he was like, oh, no, I can't this time. And he says, I'm really, really super busy today, but I'd love to. but I just can't. And so I thought I'd be really clever. So I thought I'd combine, oh, basque, comme le And instead of, like, laughing and saying, oh, that's awesome, he went, Julie, that means you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) I said, what do you mean? If you have a broken heart, because it's a concrete language, Uh it literally means you have a broken heart Mm -hmm. and it's not working anymore.
0: (laughs) That um, makes me think of the way that... uh, adequate is translated, because it's often translated as cradled on the waves. But what I've seen as more accurate is lying in the water. Yes. Because cradled on the waves sounds nice. and it's It does poetic, sound
1: very but, poetic and yeah. very flowing.
0: <laughs> but from the maps I've seen, lying in the water is more accurate.
1: I think so too. So when you think about it, they do say that when you learn a new language, it actually opens up your brain to understanding more about the people with the language that you're learning because you're learning how they think of words, how they mm-hmm. see the world. Like your, your yeah. brain opens up and it's something that I really do crave. I really want to be able to experience that as a fluent Mi'kmaq speaker. But I mean, I had a heck of a time learning French in high school and I, I still yeah. want to learn that as well. But I, there's some just something in my brain that I'm able to be vocal and literate in English, but my brain doesn't function quite so well in another language yet. So I'm hoping that maybe <laughs> in the next upcoming years, maybe it's uh, you have to go to like uh, immersion, where you go there and that's all you speak and that's yeah. all you do, and eventually that's how you think. Yeah. Maybe that's what I'm going to have to do next. Language is so
0: incredible because it's all metaphorical, like even stuff that is more concrete. It's still metaphorical because you don't have direct connection to the things that you're pointing at and saying, that's a tree, that's a chair. Like it's, it's still using something in place of something else. So it's, and like you're saying, it's learning another one. It also helps you understand your own more because if you only speak one language and you don't spend too much time thinking about it. You might kind of assume that it's a natural thing, that that tree is actually a tree, but it's something else. Tree is just a word that we put on it. And that's why. People are like, why? Did, why does French have so many words for different things? Well, it's just <laughs> it's a different language. It developed separately. Actually, we got about a third of our words from them
1: That's <laughs> well, true. when
0: the Normans conquered England in 1100ish. <laughs> um, sorry, I kind of lost my track there. I always get excited thinking about language stuff. It takes hey, me I right back language. to university. <laughs> yeah, I wish I. It is one of the things I want to do most: is learn other languages. French would be. The first one, because it opens up the other Romance languages, but I would love to learn like Mi'kmaq would be another, but it's so intimidating because it doesn't have any natural connection to something like English.
1: Exactly. And even when I, the more I learn about it, where our language, you think, you know, Mi'kmaq, that would cover all of Mi'kmaqi. But even in our seven districts, I think there's different forms of it. Like when you say, oh, it's English in Canada. Well, the English in Newfoundland is different. Not totally different. I mean, you can understand it, but it is different. Or Especially French in Canada. And French in Canada. Yeah.
0: Even New Brunswick has different dialects within it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So and that's the same with uh, the Mi'kmaq language. The language that they speak in Listigush would be different than the language that they speak here or in... Cape Breton. So we have our own way, our own dialects within the Mi'kmaq language.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, your position as Poet Laureate. Um, When did you start that?
1: I started that in 2019. And I believe it was February. But they'd actually let me know, I think it was November, the year before. And I had to keep that secret till February. It was very difficult, very challenging. And only I did try to keep it. I I told my husband, of course, but that was pretty much in maybe my best, best, best friends. But I mean, that was it because they had to announce it after the end of the term of the current poet laureate at the time. And then it was my turn and then I started and we had a great big ceremony at Fanning Bank and it was beautiful and looking out in a sea of all these faces of people that I respected and looked up to so much and to see them coming there to celebrate this amazing honor uh, you know Senator Brian Francis, my good friend Elder Judy Clark, it, it was amazing, it was so much fun and then we got to start with a radio interview, like before, while everybody else was getting snacks and treats and enjoying their time. And I was whisked away to the back to start doing interviews. And
0: Damn journalists. I was, it Never give you a
1: minute alone. Though. No peace. <laughs> it was awesome. We did. We had a lot of fun with it. And then I jumped right into it. And I think the first year I ended up doing over 200 Uh, different events as a poet laureate and spearheading a few different things. And then last year, I think I ended up doing another 230 events. So I'm keeping like a running tally on what I do, where I go, what I'm presenting on Uh, sort of good with uh, university was really good at teaching you to always make sure that you documented things. So (laughs) definitely. So I was really good at making sure that I still had all those things up to par and good to go. And
0: what would be an example of something you would do at one of those events?
1: Well, we did the pride poetry slam Uh, I went there as a judge And it was an evening of fun and excitement, and we had all these young poets come out with their work, and some of them had never actually spoken their poetry in public before. Mm -hmm. And so I was there with two other amazing judges, and we got to sit there. And it was, this year, we or last year, we actually got to do it as well, which was amazing because I didn't know how we were going to do it. But we had a very, very small group of people that were allowed to come in. And then- For Pride again last year? And for the Pride Poetry Slam. And then we had our poets downstairs, and they would come up one at a time and do their poetry. And the judges were spaced out on this huge stage. There was three judges and one MC, and so we were all spaced out. And we actually live-streamed it so that everybody who wanted to come would at least be able to feel like they were a part of it virtually. Uh, The year before, we were all squished into Confederation Center Library in a little tight spot, and we were just busting at the (laughs) seams of people standing against the backs of the bookshelves and just... Squished in just trying to hear some of the words, and it was amazing. It was so much fun. And just watching the process and writing down your comments so that, you know, what they did amazing with, what they could improve with, so that everybody had a bit of feedback on their work. And and it was so exciting to see them coming back the next year to do it again and to – just to show that they've worked on things and they've kept being creative even through COVID and everything.
0: I bet the the feedback and criticism would be very positive. At, Always, at very, positive. Always yeah. very positive. Always
1: very positive because just knowing the fact that some of these people had never even, like I said, performed their performed their art and to be able to perform it even, like the first year, like I said, in a tightly packed filled library and then the next year you're just like right on there in the world wide web (laughs) either the both of them have different pluses and minuses but i think it's amazing and it was so much fun and that would be one of the things another one would be just going to summerside and opening up poetry month which is in april and sharing a poem with uh, the city council there and just having doors open that you didn't even know were even there suddenly opening up and, and you are invited to take part in different things, different events, share your opinion on things and be sort of that person that people can go to to create different projects and events and things. And I love that opportunity opportunity to be able to do that.
0: To what extent are you sort of a cultural ambassador as a Mi'kmaq person within that role.
1: There's sort of two hats with it, I guess. So the first hat would definitely be just to ensure that all people on the island have an opportunity to keep doing what they're doing. If there's an activity or an event, I definitely, if you hear how many events that I do, I very rarely say no. Um, But also at the same time, it does open up that doors for dialogue because with the work that I've already done and the work that I'm working on currently, there's so many opportunities to be able to, you know, say, well, read a story from campfire, the Mi'kmaq campfire tales, PEI, or what was it like growing up being Mi'kmaq? Can you read like one of the chapters of your book, My Mi'kmaq Mother? Like all those different things open up opportunities to share our stories, to share our, our, our legends, and to be able to share words structured together in beautiful ways to share some of our teachings. Like since I've started, I've done quite a few new poems and some of them have been about, you know, protecting our water, protecting our land, looking after each other, especially during COVID, being able to take those things that are our very essence, like our seven sacred teachings, and to be able to put them into our own lives and and try to move forward in a good way when times are just really stressful. And I know people's mental health is suffering right now. So being able to give them a moment where they can think of something else or or read something that just makes them smile. Like, I think that's what's important right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe not even so much of just saying, you know, this is who I am, Julie. This is just say, you know, here, here's a poem, read this, see what you think. Do you enjoy it? Do you want to talk about it? That sort of thing. So that's what has been my focus since COVID. When I did my uh, 100 posts, which actually were more like 130 posts, but it was about 100 posts in 100 days. And I wanted to make sure that everybody had something to look forward to and something to learn every day. Those
0: were video posts, right? Yes. Can you tell me a little more about those?
1: Well, every day I would get up and started out with just, you know, one post. And we went and to a parking lot. We brought uh, some hand drums. We got my daughter to go in her jingle dress with her her daughter, my granddaughter. Is
0: a jingle dress what it sounds like?
1: It is. It is a dress that is absolutely beautiful. It's made with 365 jingles that hang from the dress. And as cool. they dance, it's the prayers that are going up to the creator. It's a dress of healing and so we got them to dance and we posted it online. And of course, my my younger, older son went and did some drumming for me while we were doing it and I sang. And within like a day or two, it ended up getting like a thousand hits. Everybody it's- was watching it and sharing it. And they, I could feel the excitement from it. Uh-huh.
0: Because that's a lot of use, honestly, that's a lot of as, use. as someone who's trying to get people to pay attention to stuff I make. Exactly. It's a lot, it's it's a lot of views. Yeah. So
1: then we did another one. And then I just started adding commentary like, you know, mm-hmm. maybe we'll do this again tomorrow if there's enough interest. And then there was enough that's interest. And then all of a sudden it's like, welcome back to our COVID relief. Yeah. I'm Julie Pellis here, I'm Poet Laureate. And then, you know, then it would be one day it'd be a story like I would look and I'd say, long, long time ago, there was these two sisters. You know, And then I would go into story mode. Or the next day it would be a poem. Like it would be a poem that I wrote or somebody in my family wrote or a poem that resonated with me and I would explain why. So it would be always something with an explanation before and a little follow-up after. So there was always a teaching. And then when we were able to start leaving our houses and, and go safely out exploring. We decided to take this daily post to different amazing places. So we'd wake up and I'd look at uh, my youngest boy, who is 12 now, and my granddaughter and say, what do you want to do? And one day one would say, I want to find caves. So we go to Thunder Cove. We do the whole poem right in one of the caves. Oh, in that would sound Thunder so good. Cove and you yeah. know, you're squat down because you're in a cave and you're uh-huh. a little bit echoey and hollowy, but yeah, it's want. perfect, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden when the camera comes out, there's the beautiful water and teacup rock. And you know, you're showing off PEI at the same time. So then yeah. you start getting more hits from Ontario because you can see where your hits are coming from, right? Yeah. And you get more hits from Manitoba. You get more hits from Quebec because people are interested. Wish they could be- here exactly yeah. you know, they're able to go outside of all the places that you could be trapped
0: <laughs>
1: yeah we're in the best place yeah. ever doesn't even
0: feel like trapped. doesn't even
1: feel like yeah. trapped you know and then next day my granddaughter says i want to go to a waterfall so we go up to this little place by surrey that has the most beautiful little waterfall that you have to walk about five minutes into the woods and you find it you find it by just listening and then you hear it absolutely beautiful. And so we ended up singing a song. You'd have to was, get directions for that later. Yes. I'd love oh my, to see that. It is amazing. You will love it. And it was probably May. So there was still a little bit of snow in the woods. And but the beauty of it, the green was still starting to come out in the water. And so mm-hmm. we stood on one of the little rocks in the middle and started drumming and singing and and that was our post for the day. But every day it would be an adventure. And every day it gave us something to look forward to. And believe it or not, people came on the ride with us to see what we were going to do every day. And I think they found some joy and some relief from what everybody was going through with being able to watch these every day.
0: So was this on Instagram or Facebook, YouTube?
1: It started out on Facebook, on my I think I started with the Poet Laureate site, and then I moved over to the Heritage Actors. And so then I did doing, I was doing one post for the Poet Laureate page, and then I was doing another post for the Heritage Actors. And after I burned out my kids from wanting to do it every day, then I ended up just doing one post for both pages. And then one of the things that I sort of promised myself that I wanted to do was to redo a lot of those with better sound and better video. And because I have had so many people in the last few months reaching out and saying, oh, that video you did about uh, the story of the Star Sisters, we'd love to be able to share that in our classroom. And right now I have all of them saved on a Google Drive, so I could easily, I said, send me your email and I'll share a link. Instead of trying to take it off of Facebook, which sort of shrinks our videos and makes them not quite as good. Yeah. So it's if like you're nice. sharing the direct video from a Google Drive, then at least they're going to get a little bit better quality. But at the time, it was just my cell phone, right? So. Yeah.
0: And that, that can get good quality, but yeah. you've got to have good circumstances for that.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So this was posted on the Heritage Actors page and the Poet Laurie page? Yes. So heritage actors you're involved with that too right yes <laughs> um are not even anywhere near through my list of things that Julie's involved with listeners so is that related to Mi'kmaq legends
1: it is Mi'kmaq legends started out in about 2009 as a brainchild of my good friend, uh, Ron Zakar. And he included me in some of these big visions that he was having for the future. And the start was he asked me to take eight traditional stories, uh, of Mi'kmaq, past culture, anything like that, and to make them into poems. So that's when I started looking and I found Silas Rand. And I picked eight stories that I felt had universal truths in them that could be transferred from way back when to now with ease, right? So the universal truths had to be in there. But also that would be friendly for family viewing, friendly, you know, because a lot of our stories were fairly raw. And, you know, there is a place for those. And I think they are as important as the ones that I selected. But these ones I really wanted to have for a family audience. So I picked eight of them and I started creating poems out of them. And this was, like I said, in 2009. And at the same time, he had the idea of trying to create a new sound to go with it. And this sound he wanted to call Native Gumbo. And what he Native did Native Gumbo? Yes. So you'll have to look that up and okay. check it out. What they did is they got one of our stronger, amazing drum groups here on the island to combine with uh, a more traditional uh, band with like a saxophone, a drum, uh, all these other different instruments that you would find if you were going to see a symphony or something, right? So they combined these sounds where, you know, one minute you hear the drum and the men chanting and they, this one song they did, the wind song is like, you know, hey, and then all of a sudden all these other instruments start floating in the air underneath it. And then when the drum group quiets down, then this, this, uh, this other sounds start rising up. And then as they settle down, then the drum group comes up and it was an amazing collaboration that created some really beautiful music and that sort of was going on around 2010.
0: And this is all Mi'kmaq Legends. And
1: this is all, well, it had its own life, but it was, I think, originally the brainchild to create this new music and to go with Mi'kmaq Legends. Right. But they own stories. entity, which is amazing, which is really good. Um, and then after that was sort of done and created, and they made a CD, the whole bit, it was for awesome. Native Gumbo? Something- yes. And they ended up playing it, I think, Music P.E.I. There was a big event that they do on Queen Street. So, I mean, they did. They did so well with that. And then in 2011, they ended up having, what was it they ended up doing? They ended up having an indigenous playwright come and direct a show for the Young Company. So they came to the Confederacy, and they went to the First Nations to look for young people to come and act. So Richard ended up acting in that one, and a whole bunch of other young people from the community came and acted in it, and they did the production called The Talking Stick. Now, Richard had been in Young Company about two years before with *Abegweit Soul of the Island, and then so for him it was coming back and just getting to learn all those amazing skills that they get to teach you in that. But every day at lunch I tried my hardest no matter where I was to to be there in the audience and watch this young indigenous group showcase the stories of our culture all across Canada. It wasn't just Mi'kmaq. It was like they went to BC to talk about the whales. They went up north to talk about uh, a legend up there. So all these different things compiled to become the talking stick. And they loved it. We loved it. And we just didn't want it to end after. So we ended up getting the director of the talking stick to come and take some of these poems that I'd been doing and make them into a script, which they did. So these eight poems suddenly became script. And that script became Mi'kmaq Legends. And she originally decided to do it with puppets. So it was behind this white drum. Like it was, I think some kind of saplings that were tied together in a huge circle and then a white sheet tied tight and the light behind it. So all of our puppets were behind this white, and it looked like a white drum in the middle of the stage.
0: That's a nice setting.
1: So we we would do all these different things. We had one narrator that would stand in the front and read the, the legend as a script, and we would act it out behind the screen. So it was amazing, and we only ended up doing one show that year. Where was that? And that was at the MCPEI AGA. So and that was at the Murphy Center. Okay, cool. So that was our very first one. And then the next year we took it oh from behind the big white drum to on the stage, and we had a lot more different speaking roles, a lot more different work with it. We had different directors that came and helped us through a lot of the process. And then I think by the third year, we got two of our actors to step up and become the directors, co-directors of this production. And they added new music, they added new, you know, scripts, and it was amazing. So was was it using
0: the music from Native Gumbo before? Was that combined?
1: No, unfortunately. It only got used for the very first show. Okay. What they did is they played uh, one of the poems that I created was... um, creation. And what they did is they took me, my poem, and they got one of the drummers to read it. And then very subtly underneath this poem, they had uh, the rise and fall of the wind song that I was just telling you about where it comes up and then it goes down. And we ended up playing that while we were on the stage for our very first show. And we just sort of acted out around the music. But then, no, and unfortunately never did get used again, which is sort of sad because it was absolutely beautiful. (laughs) There's a
0: CD, though, you said?
1: There is a CD out, so you should have a look around, see if you can find it. And if not, I'll see if I can find a few copies that I have at home. I'm sure I do.
0: Borrow one from the library and burn it.
1: Exactly. (laughs) There you go. Old
0: enough to know how to do that and know what it
1: is.
0: (laughs) So Mi'kmaq Legends evolves into heritage actors.
1: Yes, what we ended up deciding is that we needed to have two different products. One product would be our our events product, which we would go to conferences, workshops. We would have different scripts and actors that would be able to start and stop on cue, trained by professional directors. Each year we ended up having somebody different, and this would be... The ones that we go out and we would go all across the Atlantic. We ended up going to Toronto. We ended up going to Newfoundland. And you would know that if you were watching it in Charlottetown, it would be exactly the same as if you were watching it in one of the other Atlantic uh, towns, cities. So that was where Mi'kmaq Legends ended up going. It went into a two-hour professional indigenous theatrical production that was made and created and and done by all of our indigenous actors. And then Mi'kmaq heritage actors, because my heart has always been to where we need to keep our young people involved so that they can eventually get to that stage where they jump up into the Mi'kmaq Legends crew. So we needed to still be able to work with them, but to be able to do that, we created Mi'kmaq Heritage Actors. And Mi'kmaq Heritage Actors just became this group of young people, our seasoned actors who would keep working with our young people, and we would do our parks shows where Kids would come and see kids dressed in regalia and dancing with their hoops or dancing with their jingles, and it would be just an opportunity for them to showcase who they are in a nice safe place where they wouldn't get, you know, in trouble by not knowing exactly where they're standing or exactly how to move their hands or tilt their heads Mm -hmm. or say it with this connotation when they're doing their lines. This was a safe place for them to learn theater to learn the stories, learn, to learn the songs and have fun. Yeah. Because I mean, this would be the place where if I was like pretending to be a mama bear and I'm walking with a certain way and all of a sudden I slip and the young actors are allowed to <laughs> laugh and we incorporate it into the story where mm-hmm. poor mama bear must have a sore leg, you know? <laughs> because it's safe and it's a place where they can still learn Theater and still be able to to do all those amazing things, but at the end of the day, you know they don't have the the stress as doing the two-hour professional production, right?
0: So important for young people to learn that stuff.
1: Exactly, positive. See them grow, change, and. And then even we went a little bit farther, and two years ago, we created a third group, which is the Next Gen Legends, which is those little, little ones that are between like five to six years old, and they, of course, that still incorporates our older, younger teens, like they would be 16 and 17 now, but at the time they were 14 and 15, and so we'd get the 14 and 15-year-olds doing theater with the young people, the young, young people, And being able to show them, you know, when they walk out on a stage, how the confidence that they can gain and Mm -hmm. to learn a few lines, but still be able to be in a safe place and smaller venues, you know, venues that are allowing for more improv instead of just direct line to line to line, or this is how it's going to go every Wednesday when you come and see our show. It's going, it's not, it's not going to be that show that starts and stops at this time. And Kids are always going to be on cue. Like there's going to be a time where I'm standing there and I say, and along claim glue cap And then 10 minutes later, I'm still going, I wonder where that glue cap went, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. because it's teaching them that they, you do have to learn to g- gain that trust with who you're working with, that they won't leave you hanging on the stage for five minutes, but. We wanted to make sure that even the littler kids had that opportunity. So this is where we created the Next Gen Legends. And we pretty much gave it to our middles who are our teenagers to be able to try to run and teach and and work with them. So the Next Gen is a mix between all three of those levels. And then Mi'kmaq Legends was just that polished two-hour show Mm -hmm. that... Perfected by directors and added on to every year, with little bits here and there. But mostly, it stayed solid and it's still solid. But it's not like heritage actors where you go out and you just have fun.
0: That next gen thing gets me excited. Honestly, I know That's, it really sounds is. like the right two kinds of ages to have too. Because like five and six year olds, pure imagination. Yes, they haven't been you know jaded by the world yet. They just want to explore and. 14, 15, not quite cool teenagers, some of them might be, but they're also like the perfect age to mentor those young kids.
1: Exactly. And
0: show them what you can grow up into and also keep those 14, 50 year olds <laughs> on a good track to, you know, not doing the stuff the teenagers do. As,
1: exactly. As a
0: teenager who used to do those things.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. So watching it develop and unfold. And so hard to believe that, you know, 2009 was the beginning of it. 2011 was the realization of it, where it actually came true. And now it's 2021 and we're still here. We're still working. It's a little bit harder with COVID. There's not quite such a demand for theater right now but we still have small little areas where we are invited to come and either drum or we're invited to come and share stories uh working a lot with the schools getting in there and bringing you know 20 hand drums and letting everybody get a chance in their Mm -hmm. music class to to sing them and learn a Mi'kmaq song so I mean it still extends farther which is amazing and still active and relevant but hopefully this covid will be done soon so we can get back to to theater again yeah. cuz i miss it it's it gets into your heart and your blood and that's sort of all you end up thinking about well i could do a play about this because this is a really great teaching or i could you mm-hmm. know make a song that'll go with this or <laughs> so yeah once you start doing it it's hard not to do it
0: to borrow some business jargon it sounds like those organizations are kind of scalable and modular like you can go the full grand production or if you have like a particular story you want to tell or like a scene from one of the things you can take a smaller group and do that somewhere is that right
1: yes and i've been actually well i think it was more my son than i talking about getting some more like modern indigenous stories stories of our survival and incorporating them very very gently into one of our our groups, probably heritage actors would be the best, I think, because then you would have the age groups. Nothing that, because I, do, I still try to proceed with caution and make sure that our stories are user-friendly and they won't trigger anybody or, you know, harm them in any way psychologically. So I really try to stick to those stories. So the modern stories are a little bit harder once you talk about colonization and those topics with residential schools, missing and murdered indigenous women, the, all these different things, the sixty scoop. Like there is really devastating stories to share, but I think eventually it will come to me how I can do it in a good way.
0: I guess it'd be kind of a balance of sharing that history because it's important, but also emphasizing that it's not all tragedy that there is triumph within that too
1: we're still here yeah i guess that's a good way to put it
0: um so what have you guys been able to do during covid
1: well as i said we are doing a lot of virtual things yeah uh Canada Day we were pretty busy. We ended up doing one Canada Day show for Stratford and another Canada Day show for the city of Charlottetown, which was awesome because we were able to get together again. We were able to put the big drum out in the sun and we were able to do all these different things. Confederation Centre of the Arts included us in one of their programs, so we were able to go and do filming down at Fort Amherst, uh Skamagan. We have had a lot of these sort of virtual events, but it's not the same as like a a crowd, an audience, uh, people who like what you do and appreciate what you do. I mean, not that... It isn't fun being in front of the camera because believe it or not, I have a lot of amazing things that we can add now to our collection of things for when these kids that I'm working with grow up, they can look back and they can see what they did in 2020 because there's so much video, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. which is I think something that we may have missed a little bit, but I mean, we did do as much as we could at the time, but we were just more into theater So jumping into multimedia has given us an opportunity to be able to preserve a lot of the stories with the actors at the age that they are now performing it, whereas like you give that five years, these actors will be either jumping up to Mi'kmaq legends or they'll be you know, off enjoying some yeah. other different thing in their life. And different people in five different years. Different people. You just never yeah. know. So being able to capture it is important too. And that's sort of what my learning thing has been over COVID with our theater company is that preserving our stories preserving our actors at the time that they're doing it because they do grow up and you know it's not everybody gets to live a a life of being Peter Pan and being able to go and just tell stories and be happy and create things and create ideas and be able to share stories and ideas and teachings in the way that we do
0: Kids will remember those things, too. Even if they totally lose interest in theater, it'll still be a positive memory.
1: They'll still remember like, it. I
0: was at a play in grade six that's still one of my only good memories from elementary school. <laughs> I actually played a TV news anchor.
1: Aw, and look at that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so how many people are in this theater company?
1: Three years. Well, two life. years ago, Indiana there Indiana was in Heritage 17 in Heritage Actors. Mm-hmm. In Heritage Actors. And probably, let's see, I think about nine of those became the next-gen legends. And then uh, Mi'kmaq legends, we had about five core group, and we added two more over the last two years. So there's five of the core, and then now seven. And I think three of my heritage actors will probably be bumping up to uh, Mi'kmaq legends because they're 17 this year they're going to be 18 soon and they're ready to a lot of my legends were like 16, 17 when they started into legends <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's time but I mean we still use that group to jump down to heritage actors and then we get the younger ones to jump down again to the next gen legends so that we're always guiding each other always teaching each other And I find that even when you're teaching, you're learning at the same time.
0: Something interesting you kind of made me think of is before the pandemic, if you wanted to do like video stuff, you kind of need someone who knows how to do that. But pandemic forced everybody to learn how to do it. And now you do.
1: That is true. I mean, we put in a grant for the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, and we ended up getting a bit of money so that we could buy some equipment for sound and some equipment for Mm -hmm. video And recording and really exciting time. I'm actually just taking my time learning each piece so that I can figure it out. I keep getting these amazing projects that they say. Do you have a Zoom recorder? And it's like I do now. I Um, do. (laughs) Two of them. How do we do with it? Like how do we use it? And then very easily. It is actually a very user friendly device, and I'm very very thankful for it because when you live in a house with uh, three young people trying to find a quiet corner Mm -hmm. to record different things for different events at home is really hard. But this actually helps a lot to reduce some of the background noises. (laughs) Yeah. And they're
0: reliable and built like a rock. And if you want to sponsor this podcast, Zoom.
1: There you go, Zoom. This is your opportunity. All of my
0: episodes have been made on one of your H6s. (laughs) That's probably a good place to leave this for now.
1: Because we can pick it up from wherever you want to go.
0: Absolutely. And that's it for episode 22 with Julie Pellissier-Lush. We're still planning another session, so don't worry. There's more Julie to come. As things move forward, it does look like these progress reports are going to be mostly about my work as an actual journalist. I will note, though, as I write this on May 7th, it is one year plus a day since I released episode one of OJT, the stand-up comedy host with James Brown. The past year of podcasting has been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. I'm a guy who likes to work on a project. Ask me about the KNS, my angsty high school poetry books, or my ill-fated radio career at CKDU, Dalhousie's campus radio station. But nothing compares to getting to share in other people's love for what they do. It's truly one of my favorite things. Learning is maybe my greatest passion, and to get to sit across from people as they teach me about their world is an amazing privilege. And that's what I want to talk about this month, learning about other people and their worldviews, particularly their religions. As some listeners will know, I've been working on an eight-part series on world religions that have found a home in PEI. I grew up in Summerside and certainly noticed how little diversity there was. That's been changing, though. And I thought now was a good time to look at the different ideas and beliefs that new diversity brings. With change comes suspicion, especially around things like religion that are so personal to people. But I believe a lot of that suspicion comes from not understanding and perhaps not wanting to. I know I won't reach those who don't care, but the ones who are curious and concerned about their new neighbors, these stories are for them. So far, I've published pieces on Mi'kmaq spirituality and the smudging ceremony, Judaism and Passover, the Baha'i faith and their monthly interfaith devotional in Charlottetown, and Sikhism and the festival of Vaisakhi. As I'm writing this, I've just finished a piece on Islam and Eid, the three-month celebration that caps the holy month of Ramadan. The remaining stories are on Buddhism and Buddha's birthday in May, and Hinduism and a yet-to-be-decided holiday. There's quite a few of them. I was also recently approached about doing an interview with an Anglican Archdeacon for World Religion Day. Actually, the minister who emailed me said she'd been reading my work and she asked that I interview people for a few more faiths. I told her about the remaining planned stories and was quite honoured when she told me that she thought it was in good hands, and she just asked that I add the Anglican clergy that I mentioned. Honoured is really the word for how this whole experience has been. I'm still glowing from the smudging ceremony at John Joe Sark's house. I can still feel the warmth of Suvneet Singh's family and the samosas he gave me. And I know I'm doing something that matters. It's the kind of thing I got into journalism to do. With so many hats to try on for listeners, Julie Pellicier lush will be back soon. Until then, you can find her work online at juliepellicierlush.wordpress.com. Julie also suggested listeners check out her theater companies, Mi'kmaq Legends at Mi'kmaqLegends.com and Mi'kmaq Heritage Actors on Facebook. You can follow this podcast on Instagram at OJT underscore podcast and on Twitter at ojt podcast. The Facebook page is OJT on the job training. You can follow me on Instagram at Logan.McLean.75 and on Twitter at LoganMcLean94. And finally, listeners, please check out my website, OJTPod.ca, for my written stories and photography podcast is available there and on all major streaming platforms. Please rate and subscribe and leave a review. Everything helps when getting a podcast off the ground. And if you like the show and want more interesting guests, listener feedback is the best way to help me reach new people and make that happen. This has been OJT,
1: On The Job Training. I'm Logan McLean. Thank you for listening.